This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There has been endless talk lately here and elsewhere about the minimum wage in Ontario. And depending on which side of this discussion you're on, this is either a story about greedy corporate overlords trying to pinch their pennies like Scrooge McDuck and not wanting to give any to the little people, or it's about Kathleen Wynne's folly in creating an economic framework in our province that is destined to crush small business. Now, those in the first category will take the position and are taking the position that business owners should simply adjust their spending or increase their prices if they are needing to so that their workers can make a living wage, can make a better wage. That is the first argument. But what happens if you're willing to do that, if you're okay to do that, but you can't do that, if your business doesn't allow for that kind of thing, but you still have to now pay much, much higher minimum wage. What then? What if you can't lower your costs and what if you can't raise your prices and yet your payroll has just gone up 25%? What do you do then? Calvin Kane is the Hamilton Regional Director for the Ontario Homes for Special Needs Association. He joins me now. Calvin, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the economics part, let's just set this up a little bit. Tell me about your association and what it does. Well, the association, uh, the the provincial association, is a non-for-profit uh, association that govern and uh, you know uh, administrate work or ideas for um, the domiciliary hostel or the RCS across Ontario, and as well as the HSC program. So these are people with both physical and with mental challenges. That's correct. These are folks that need assistance uh, for their daily, daily living. And so, t- just to make absolutely clear, we are talking in many cases, I would assume then, about the people that, if we were going to be very blunt, the people who need the most amount of help, who are perhaps the most challenged in our community. That is absolutely correct. Okay, so uh, the weakest among us, really. I mean, very bluntly, the weakest among us. Yes, we're throwing them under the bus, basically. So you've got the people who we should say... Whether you want other people to work or whatever, these are people who, it's not a question, they need our help, and so you have places, residences, whatever else, for these people. And how many, by the way, how many do you help? How many people are under this umbrella in the city of Hamilton, for example? In the city of Hamilton, it's about 800. Okay. So you spoke to the Emergency and Community Services Committee at City Hall this week uh, about the finances behind this. Take, take me through a little bit. Explain where, for you, the challenge comes in with this minimum wage and how it affects you. Well, uh, the minimum wage, in, in first of all, uh, just the basic uh, $14 an hour. Uh, we were already struggling uh, to meet the previous minimum wage as our per diem rate is only $50 a day per person. And the economics is that um, with uh, a 35% or 30% increase on the actual uh, payroll, it's it's the if you do the math, it, it's it's the money's not there. So it's fifty dollars. You get from who? From the province or from the city? We get uh, a subsidized rate is fifty dollars. Uh, ODSP pays around uh, 45% of that, and the city takes up the balance, 26%. And would I be safe in assuming that your clients don't pay for these services? Well, they pay through ODSP. Uh, that's their contribution. Okay, but if I'm if a client was coming to you, so they're, they're getting part of their government grant 
right. or their government pay, which would be directed to this, but they're not paying on top of that from no. things if they have a job or something else. They don't have to do that. No, they uh, they don't have a job. Most of them uh, have never been in the work environment. Uh, and if they did, uh, you know, for different reasons uh, for their d- disability, they are unable to work. $50 a day, though, and if you have 800 if I'm doing my math right, that's... Uh, how much, I mean, it's not a lot of money. I, I won't even no. do the math so I don't screw it up, but that's not a lot of money coming in every day. It doesn't sound like to make, if you've got all these people who need staff, who need residents, who need all kinds of other things, that doesn't sound like it's a lot of money. Yeah, the, key, the, the other part of the equation is that the city only pays for the occupied beds. So if you have a facility of 20 beds and you pay the license for 20 beds and you've only got 12 residents, the $50 only applies to those 12 residents. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Let's continue our conversation here about minimum wage when simply saying raise prices or cut costs doesn't work. That's not always the case. Not every business can do that. Calvin Kane is the Hamilton Regional Director for the Ontario Homes for Special Needs Association. He had spoken to a council, a committee of City Hall at City Hall this week about this. And Calvin, I, as I understand from the story, it's not just this that you're dealing with. And maybe you can explain some of the other stuff. You had mentioned that food prices have gone up significantly for you. Yes. Uh, well, let's take a step back. Um, say, for instance, the $50 a day that we get right now, uh, I've been asking the city to break that down for me in terms of the what does it covers uh, my wages, my labor, my food, uh, my maintenance, and to see how it breaks down. Because 45% of that $50 is really uh, my labor before the minimum wage. 45%. So that's, or say 50% for argument's sake. And uh, so the, the other $25 now, I have to break that down in terms of my food costs, my maintenance costs, and my licensing and, and fees costs. So it doesn't leave very much. No, no, it certainly doesn't. And now you're going to bring up by 25% or 30% the minimum wage amount, again, to pay for your labor. Where does the money come from? How are you... Your answer, I think, if I understand this correctly, what you said to my colleague at The Spectator, Natalie Padden, who wrote the piece today, you can read it online, by the way, residential care facilities squeezed by minimum wage hike. What happens to the places if you just can't pay for things? Well, uh, just like any business, if the bottom line is not there and the the the, the, the uh, not able to make ends meet, you have to close the doors. But you can't do that, can you? No, we can't do that because we mandated from the city to to keep um, under our license to keep this uh, facility open, and uh, we have to supply the care, the staffing. We can't reduce the the amount of uh, staff that we have. We can't reduce the food. We can't reduce the care. Uh, some of these folks, the operators, have to take it upon themselves to really advocate for them in the hospital because they have no family. The family is within the home. Calvin, it becomes, to me, if I'm listening to you correctly and if I'm understanding correctly, this is literally the definition of an impossible situation because you can't cut your costs, you can't raise your prices, and yet you have to maintain the same level of service. A rock and a hard place, yes, definitely. It's a very critical situation, and and I tried to explain that to the councillors last night or yesterday, but uh, they're throwing it back to the province. But at this point, yes, it's a provincial 
initiative, but however, these are Hamiltonians. These are uh, people in Hamilton that are going to be on the street or the hospitals are closed right are, are full right now. They, they basically are looking for these homes to accommodate the folks that they're going to be, be um, discharging. And the fact is that the home can't accommodate them. For one, there's a wait list. For two, they can't afford it uh, to bring people in because the more folks you bring in, the more hours, the more staffing you need, the more care you need. So it's like a domino effect. I got to say, and I, I hear what you're saying, I, I have to say that I understand the city's position on this one to a degree, though, that this is a, a provincial thing that has been passed down and suddenly now the city is holding the bag to try and pay for this. To me, while it would be great, and I, I'm with you, I'd love for the city to be able to step up if they don't have the money. Um, I, I don't want to get into a debate with you about who should pay for it, but boy, this seems like if the province is enforcing a massive increase in your prices... That seems like it should. Some of it should be coming from the province, especially if they're if it's mandated. Yes, we are actually um, talking to the province uh, with respect to you know what are they going to do in this coming budget. Uh, we've uh, sent information to Janet Hope, uh, Deputy Minister of um, Housing, and others regarding the situation. Not just now; we've been doing it since the summer or, or the beginning of last year, knowing that this minimum wage would uh, basically devastate this industry and causing these homes to close and really at the end of the day it's the folks that are don't have any place to go the family is is within the home and the situation is that we're going to be putting them on the street or putting them in a dangerous situation that they cannot live are there other not certainly you represent an organization so a type of places but other cogs in the social services wheel if you want to call it that that are facing the same thing now whether it's special needs or whether it's something else, do you hear from other places that help people that say, man, we're, we're really stuck with this? Well, uh, the, everyone is basically uh, trying to see what they can do to uh, weather the storm. But in our case, it's just we can't go right, we can't go left. We're just between a rock and a hard place right now. And the operators are calling uh, me trying to find out you know, which direction we need to take. And uh, we're just hoping that we can work with the city to work something out by now in the budget time that will keep us afloat. Last thing, Calvin. These are people, presumably many of them have family. Are you allowed by law to turn to the family and say, look, we're, we're stuck. Uh, we're going to have to start charging you for this service. Is that allowed? No, it's not. So even as a last resort that you wouldn't want to do, you couldn't do that? No, we're on a contract. And with the Schedule 20 uh, bylaw that the city has, uh, we cannot do that. It's structured through the city, through the subsidy. We can basically do that on an independent person, totally independent of the residential care, a private person. But those are um, in a situation where those are more in the long-term care facilities. It is a mess, for sure, and it, it sounds like, certainly on its face, that, boy, this is a, uh, a difficult spot to be in. I would encourage yeah. people to go to thespec.com and read. The piece is called Residential Care Facilities Squeezed by Minimum Wage Hike. If, if I may please, yes. add that Hamilton is one of the largest region of folks, so seven 800 folks, and it's growing. And, and one of the more concerning thing that we should be looking at, we're getting younger and younger folks. These are not just folks who are 55, 60, 70 these are folks who are sometime in their 20s and in their 30s that are uh, have these disabilities that prevent them from actually doing things for themselves and need support. 
Calvin Kane, Hamilton Regional Director for the Ontario Homes for Special Needs Association. Calvin, thanks for doing this today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Many of you have two kids, three kids, one kid, whatever. You've had kids. You've been there. You've done the kid thing. Now, I was there in the room for both of their births. And having been there, I have come to a conclusion, by the way, this is a little off topic, but I've come to the conclusion that childbirth classes and the breathing exercises and all that other stuff, it's got nothing to do with the mother. That is for the guys, so we don't pass out when this whole thing is happening. (laughs) That's what we're doing beside the bed to make sure we don't crumple into a heap. Anyway, both of mine were delivered safely in the hospital under the watchful eye of doctors and nurses and whoever else was walking in and out of the room. You don't even keep track at that point. People are coming and going. It could be the maintenance guy. It could be the janitor. You don't know as long as the baby is coming out fine and you're safe. Well, my next guest did not quite have that level of comfort in the hospital with a birth under the watchful eye of pretty much anyone. To set this up, let me read the tweet he sent shortly after his daughter's birth a day or so ago. Our daughter came screaming into this world at 100 kilometers per hour. We better explain that one. Uh, Joe Rand from Burlington joins me now. Joe, how are you tonight? Not too bad. Thanks for having me. Uh, Congratulations, by the way. No, that's great. Actually, I, I laughed when you said uh, it, those courses that you, you have. Uh, I wish there was a course for something that I endured uh, a couple <laughs> yeah. nights ago. Well, Jeez. you do sound very, very calm right now. I'm guessing the adrenaline might have been a slight bit different 24 hours, 36 hours ago. Yeah, 36 hours ago, um, things were much different. We're back at home now. Everybody's happy. Everybody's healthy. Um Man, what an experience. Well, let's go through this. Let's set this thing up. Uh, your wife, Heidi, was, what, about a week past her due date? Yeah, so she was going on nine days past the due date. Okay, so it's coming. You know it's happening sooner rather than later. Yep, yep. What are the instructions from your midwife if contractions start? What did she say to do? Um, I mean, if you go back to the playbook, you just have to monitor the contractions. Uh, once they start getting closer and regular, uh, it kind of gives you the indication that the baby's on its way. Um, that wasn't the case for us. So what happened? So, uh, about 1030, uh, we were winding down for the night. I actually went to bed a little bit earlier expecting that I was going to go to work the next day. And I get a nudge from my wife and she says, it's happening. I'm getting regular contractions. And we reverted to the app that, you know, tracks your, uh, contractions and how long, you're, how long in between, how many you're having, et cetera. And, you know, in, in retrospect, looking back, like they were all irregular like they were six and a half minutes to two and a half minutes apart to 10 minutes apart so for those of you that have kids know what i'm talking about for those of you that don't they need to be a little bit more consistent uh, to give you the indication of when the baby's going to come okay so had you had up until this point had there been any kind of false alarms any false contractions or whatever they call those now had had there been signs that maybe you were looking at this going okay we're still not really there yet yeah, I, I mean, she's just getting some regular cramps, and uh, I, I thought, you know, I, we've been down this road before. We actually had a previous birth, our firstborn, and it went 36 hours, so we kind of jumped the gun, went to the hospital early, <laughs> and we ended up waiting there for a while. So this one, you know, we were we were pretty certain that it, it's happening, it's on. Um, so when my wife tapped me, she's like, okay, call the midwife, call your mom, let's get everybody set up. Um, and then when my mom got here, and we said that we were going to meet the midwife at the hospital that we were supposed to uh, deliver at, which was Credit Valley in Mississauga. Um, you know, we, we set off in the car, and uh, the next two and a, 25 minutes, uh, 
um, was uh, all right. So yeah, you, something I'll never for, yeah, forget. You're in Burlington, right? Yes. You're in Burlington, so you're heading towards Mississauga. Um, how far are you from your house when you start to notice that things are changing? So, um, well, let me let me paint the picture. So we, we left the my house. We got on the 407, and probably within seven minutes into the drive, uh, Heidi says my water broke, and at that at that point, I'm like, okay, like. Um, you know, it's, we're almost there. Just, just hang on. But she's like, Oh no, that's a relief. Like there's so much pressure and now I feel good. So she was actually kind of making me feel really good. Like, okay, we're going to make it. So only 20, 25 minutes until we're there. So that's great. Uh, and then, uh, within five minutes, she started screaming hysterically and, uh, you know, I'm keeping my eyes on the road going, you know, the speed limit. And, uh, all of a sudden I, I hear a baby crying and <laughs> You know, for those of you that are driving to the hospital, the last <laughs> noise you expect to hear is a baby crying. So I kind of glance over. She's sitting in the passenger seat in the front. I, she has two hands on the head that's coming out. I'm like, oh, my God, the baby's crying. So immediately I put on the hazard. I pull off to the side of the road. At the time of night, like this is just past uh, 10 minutes past midnight, so there's no other cars on the road. You're on the 407, right? So it's especially empty. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's probably taking the main routes because there's no traffic there. So there's nobody on the road, uh, four ways on, high beams on, et cetera, just trying to be visible. Um, and at that point, I was just thinking, I mean, it's a, it looks like a CSI scene there. Uh, I'm just reaching for anything I can to, to make the baby warm and Heidi warm because you can imagine that the shock that, you know, she has, I'm in shock and we're just trying to, you know, make sure she's warm, the baby's warm. And that was my first natural instinct, um, just to make sure everybody's happy and, and, and healthy, right? Good for you, because my first natural instinct probably would have been to hit the f- pedal to the floor and go about 600 <laughs> miles an hour. I don't even know what direction I'd be going in. Just drive somewhere. Just do something. Uh, you are a professional hockey player, right? You have been a professional hockey player? Yeah, I was uh, living overseas for the past seven years, just returning to Canada. Okay, but you've played in the OHL, you played for the Kilty Bees for a while, you've played, as you say, in Europe for a few, but you're not a doctor. You've had pressure before, but you're not a doctor, and you certainly, I'm guessing, have not seen anything like this before. Is there any prep for this? Is there any way to prepare yourself, pressure or not? Is there any way to prepare yourself for this? I've seen a lot of blood with hockey injuries and scars and cuts, but no, I don't. Nothing prepares you for this. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Playing for a championship and in, in the last minute being on the ice, not the same. No, you know you can draw comparisons and try and say that you know there is some similarity, but there's absolutely nothing that can compare. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Joe Rand, who was driving his car through the night from Burlington to Mississauga to have a baby with his wife Heidi, didn't quite make it. They're off on the side of the road when we left off, Joe, and you just had a baby emerge unexpectedly. I don't know how better to describe this. Uh, pick up the story. You see, you've now got a baby on your wife's life. Now, by the way, not to get too uh, National Geographic here, but by this point, is the baby fully out? Yes. At this point, Heidi's got Mila. She's on uh, her chest. You know, we've grabbed all the blanket, well, blankets and sweaters and jackets, and I even took the shirt off my back to give it to, to Mila and Heidi so they can stay warm. At that point, I thought I need to call the ambulance or get some sort of help over here because um, you, you never know in these sorts of situations if the umbilical cord's tangled or, or, or whatever medical emergency may happen. 
uh, I just figured we need to get a 911 called and get support over here ASAP. So I called the operator, and he's a great guy. I never caught his name, but uh, if you're listening, uh, thank you very much. You know, you coached me through that whole uh, situation. It was brilliant. Um, he did a wonderful job. He dispatched the ambulances. And then I kept him on speakerphone, and I was just with my wife, and he was just saying, make sure the baby's warm, make, make sure she can breathe, take out any mucus or, or fluids from the mouth and the nose, and, and you know, make sure that she's able to breathe. So he did a really wonderful job keeping us calm and telling us what to do. And then at about, I'd say, five to ten minutes, he, he said, how long has the baby been out for? And again, I, I didn't know, and I just said, yeah, maybe like five, ten minutes. He's like, okay, are you wearing shoes with laces? And I said, yeah. And he's like, I'm going to need you to take – one of the laces off, and you're gonna have to tie it around the umbilical cord. <laughs> okay. Like, um, yeah. Doctor Joe, now in, now now working. Yeah. So I take off the laces, and uh, he instructs me. He's like, "Okay, it's got to be four inches from the baby's soon be belly button, tied off." And I'm like, "Okay, tied as hard as you can." And he's like, "Yep." So he coached me through the whole procedure, tied it off, and uh, yeah, it would seem like a couple hours. It took us probably. You know, the ambulance got there within 10 minutes. But um, one last part that I'd like to share with you. So after we're, you know, tied up, the umbilical cord's tied off, baby and uh, mom are, are warm. Heidi's like, I think this is a great time to take a selfie. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, why not? I was going to ask moment? about that. Yeah, I was going to ask. You, you very, very, you know, clarity of mind to be able to pull out the phone and take a picture at that moment. Yeah, I think this day and age, you, you want to capture every uh, every moment, so why not take uh, capture the moment when you're giving birth on the side of the road? Well, and so, I got to say, for I mean, to Heidi's credit, for a woman who just gave birth, she looks lovely. She, I mean, the the hair almost looks like it was made. She, this is a perfect picture for. You've got your shirt off. It's a bit of an odd picture with you not wearing a shirt. I got to be honest for down the road, but now that you've explained it, it makes some sense. But she pulled it off really well. Yeah, she. I mean, she was the. She was the, the head actress. I was just the supporting actor in this story. You know, she all credit goes out to her. The whole thing is, uh, in a strange way, because I, I said off the top, I don't think too many people would actually want to go through something like this, to be honest. So it's, but in the, in a way, it's kind of beautiful that you got to experience this together in this way. But I got to tell you, it is terrifying in a sense. Like when you look back later on, do you kind of go, uh, "Wow, that was that was a little bit panicky." Yeah, within the first 24 hours, we were getting a lot of, like, calls and family. And then when you had a chance just to reflect, and it was a little bit quieter in the in the hospital when we eventually got there, uh, I looked back and I, and I was thinking, like, man, so many things kind of went wrong, like, you know, complications that ends with the umbilical cord and other medical complications. We're just so lucky and blessed that, A, we, the support and emergency came relatively quickly, but also that, you know, in this sort of situation, anything could have came up, and we're happy and thankful and blessed that you know it actually was a happy story and a happy ending. I do have to go back for a second. When you call nine one one, I know that the nine one one operators have probably heard just about every single thing <laughs> that they possibly could ever be called for. But do you remember? Was there a pause at the other end, even for a half second, when you said we're off to the side of the road and my wife has just had her baby in the car? Is there any delay? Did it, did it sound like he was even a little bit like, where do I flip through in the manual for this one? <laughs> you know, I, I I don't remember. I think uh, you know he must have flipped the page two hundred fifty-seven <laughs> where it follows instructions. But he was right on point through the whole the whole process. So uh, yeah, now kudos to him. You had to make another phone call at some point. I don't know if it was in the car. I don't know if it was in the hospital. But um, who do you call first, other than nine one one, to tell about this? 
so as I'm following, like, so Heidi went into one ambulance, the, the baby went into another ambulance, which you'd think, why didn't they go into the same one? But there are two patients at this point. So I'm following behind Mila. And the first person I call is my mom, because my mom is the one that came to the house to relieve us uh, with Jack, our firstborn child, so we can make our way to the hospital. So I call her and I said, hi, mom. She's like, you're still in the car? I'm like, well, <laughs> I've got a funny story to tell you. But anyways, I told her the story and uh, and then I you know, got to the hospital. And, yeah, next things, uh, yeah, we just spent some time with the family and got in there. Did she find it funny? You said it was a funny story. Did she find it funny or was mom stunned? I think she was stunned. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I was still in shock, and uh, you know, I think she was stunned, and uh, you know, she was just happy that everything is okay. Well, I was going to ask you that just to wrap up. Everyone is okay. Mom is well. Baby is well. Everyone's good. Yeah, everybody's happy and healthy. We just came back to our place uh, at lunchtime today, so uh, mom had a nap. Baby's had a nap. Uh, I'm, I'm busy doing work around the house, but uh, no, it's everything's great. It's a great story. Uh, again, wouldn't want it to be me, to be honest, but it's a great story. And, and I bet a lot of people will say they wouldn't want it to be them, but you, uh, by the sounds of it, you handled it about as well as anybody could. So good for you and happy for your family. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks very much. That is Joe Rand, his wife Heidi, daughter Mila. That's a, that is a story you'll tell your, well, it, it is your kid. That is a story, though, that will be shared at every family function from here until whenever. And Mila... The baby, man, oh man, you know that's a story that's coming up at the wedding. 25 years, whatever, down the road. That's the first story that's going to be told. Or when she gets her first car, maybe that's when the story will be told. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. We're picking up a conversation from last night that we had here on the show that I got a ton of response to. Some stories just resonate with people it bugs people or whatever it it gets with people and last night we were chatting about a proposal by councillor sam marula to require drive-through restaurants to offer garbages so that people can throw out their garbage when they drive through and buy a coffee and on the face of it it's not a terrible idea you gotta have a place to throw out your garbage right problem i have with this and what almost everybody who has responded has said with me is that there's no need to throw out your cup at a drive-thru. If you're driving through and you've got an empty cup, there is no need that you have to throw out your cup right then. If you've got a piece of garbage and there's no garbage disposal, simply take that piece of garbage, keep it with you until you get home, and then throw it out. Why does it have to be thrown out at the drive-thru? What is the urgency that your garbage must be thrown out as you get a new piece of garbage being brought into the car. And a lot of people seem to agree. This is, to me, the problem with this is twofold. One, it is, it seems like it's unnecessary. And two, it seems like it's government interference into private business and private enterprise where it doesn't need to exist. It's not like Tim Hortons has no garbages. If you want to throw out your garbage, you don't have to drive through. You could stop and go into the restaurant, and every single Tim Hortons has a garbage inside. In fact, I bet you that every single Tim Hortons has a garbage outside the front door. So you could simply park your car, run up, throw the garbage in, and then get into the drive-thru if it was that urgent. If, If for some reason the cup that you have in your car is bothering you so intensely that you simply must get it out of the car at that very moment, there is a way to do this. 
But as I got thinking about it and I got thinking about the responses that people had, it got me to another point. Someone brought up to me today, this was not an original idea. I want to give credit. Tom suggested this today and I, it was a valid point. He says, you know what? He goes, if we're going to do this, if we're going to require garbages to be put in every place where garbage is going to be piled up, because what seems to be happening for whatever reason is if there's not a garbage, apparently some people are deciding as they do a drive through they simply have to throw it out the window and create litter. I don't understand that thought, but some people apparently are doing that. But he said, if we need to put a garbage pail everywhere, there's going to be a likelihood of litter. Well, you know what? City council is going to be very, very busy because there's a lot of places in this town and other towns where garbage is going to get built up and we don't have garbage pails. And he pointed out the first place that he pointed out, and I thought it was very interesting, was he says, you ever been to one of those super mailboxes or one of those huts in some places where they have all the mailboxes around? What happens on flyer day, on junk mail day, if you want to call it that? Not everybody wants to take those flyers home. What happens? They just get thrown on the ground. And not e- I guarantee you, not every place, and I drove by a couple of them, not every place has a garbage pail. So they just get thrown on the ground. Well, if we're going to demand that a private sector business, that a private business has a bylaw allowing people to throw out unwanted garbage, surely the same bylaw must extend to... The federal government, we must demand that Canada Post put garbages in every one of their mail areas, correct? I would agree. I would think that's fair. And if they, if it's not a federal thing, if it's not a Canada Post thing, then the city should have to do it. I've also, I can tell you that there have been many times that we've gone for a walk along the trails in Hamilton. And there is garbage. There's garbage on the trails. There's not a garbage pail every hundred meters. But if I fit by the same thinking that says, if I finish my beverage, my coffee, and I have to get rid of that cup frantically, because that seems to be the thing. I can't keep it till I get home. We should probably have a garbage pail every, let's say 200 meters on every trail in this city, because I don't want to carry my coffee. If I'm on a walk or my pop, I don't want to carry that. I'm just going to throw it. Do you see what the problem with this becomes? Why are we simply finding a private sector business and saying, we must change a bylaw to demand you do better for us? The responsibility to not litter does not fall on Tim Hortons. It doesn't fall on McDonald's. It doesn't fall on Taco Bell. It doesn't fall on pick your company. The responsibility not to litter, the point of littering, of preventing littering is not on the corporation. It's on you and it's on me and it's on people who do the drive-through. Here's a better bylaw. Let me give you a better bylaw that should be the one that's proposed instead of this one, which is ridiculous. Here's the better bylaw. We're going to have random enforcements of people. We're going to have people once in a while stopping and watching these drive-throughs and other places. And if you throw a piece of litter on the ground, it's a $1,000 fine for every piece of litter. How's that? That would be a bylaw that would stop people from throwing stuff on the ground. That would work. Now, it's over the top. It's punitive. But if the goal here is to actually make people not throw stuff on the ground, 
penalize the people who are throwing the stuff on the ground, not the people who create the product who have nothing to do with what you do with it after. They have sold you the product. It is now yours. You own it. Even though it says Tim Hortons on it or McDonald's, you have bought that. That is now your cup. You own it. You're responsible for it, not them. And if we're going to insist on doing this, we are going to need to have thousands of more garbage pails around this city to cover all this because the city and province and feds are very much as much responsible for this, if that's the case, than any private company. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We get a lot of new studies, but this one I'm lending some credence to because it makes a lot of sense. Just on its face, just logically, it makes a lot of sense. A new study says electronic devices are making kids miserable. The more time you spend on smartphones and playing computer games, the more likely you are to be unhappy, especially, it says, teenagers. And amazingly, and this is the best part about this study, I thought, there is a template here for how you can fix this or repair this or make it better. And that, that is, a template is two hours. Less time than that on your computer or phone or whatever, and you stand a better chance of being happy. More time, and you're going to be dealing with stuff. Uh, Dr. Jean Twenge is a San Diego State University professor. She is also the author. She's written many books, many great books, but she is now the author of iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. She joins me now. Dr. Twenge, thanks for taking the time tonight. Thanks for having me. Uh, two hours is a really specific amount of time. Well, how, how do we know that's the threshold for what would be a good time to have on devices? Well, if you look at the links between the amount of time that, for example, that teens spend on electronic devices and how happy they are, uh, how likely they are to be depressed, um, how likely they are to even get enough sleep, all of those paint a pretty clear picture that the sweet spot for um, mental health and happiness is around an hour or so a day. And after two hours a day, then the risks start to go up in terms of happiness, depression, and not sleeping enough. And yet the thing is that our society and the people who do tech, and we're not going to blame them, but we have designed our whole world, it seems, these days around spending more and more and more and more time on these devices. That's right. But there's an alternative to that, which is you can use that phone for what it's good for. Communicate with some uh, long-distance friends, set up some plans with your friends who are in town, uh, help have it help you find your way around, read the news when you're waiting in line. You can do all of that in less than two hours a day. Then you can put that phone down and go and live your life and go do things that are much more beneficial for happiness, like seeing friends in person, like taking a walk or watching the sunset <laughs> or everybody's favorite, actually getting enough sleep. I laugh because not that it's not not that it's not a good answer. It's just it's it sounds so funny to say we have to actually say this now. Actually, you know, talk to somebody, and that seems like it's a really out there, brilliant idea. And not taking anything away from your brilliance because you are, but saying talk to someone probably doesn't qualify someone for a PhD on that alone. It seems so <laughs> obvious. I I know it does, but we're so addicted to these devices that it's tempting to say, oh, but you know. Teens, they're just communicating with their friends. It's just the same as they've always done. A lot of people have said that, but the problem with that idea is it assumes 
that communicating on social media or through texting is just as good as seeing someone face-to-face. And it's not as good. It's not as good for happiness. It's not as good for mental health. And it's not as good for developing social skills. Just in case somebody is saying, okay, but this is probably a really little small study of 20 or 30 or 100 people that did this. As I understand it, this was over a million kids, right, that were involved in this? That's right. It's uh, a million 8th, 10th, and 12th graders who uh, filled out surveys uh, in the years since 1991. It's a national representative survey of uh, kids here in the U.S. And how was it done? Simply by saying to them, how much time do you spend and how do you define your happiness? Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, questions. Those are by far not the only ones. Uh, they're asked about 500 questions. And they are asked a general question about how happy they are. And then they're asked, um, how, many, how many hours a week do you spend on texting? How many hours a week do you spend on social media? How many do you spend online? So... Obviously, these are not completely exact estimates, but the kids who spend a lot of time know it, and the kids who don't spend as much time know it, and you still see that relationship. So, for example, uh, teens who spend five or more hours a day online are twice as likely to say they're unhappy as teens who spend less than an hour. Is there a chance in this that the reason that some kids are spending so much time online instead of with other people, is that they are unhappy to begin with, so that we're approaching this backwards and the people are going online simply to avoid people because they make them unhappy. So several studies suggest that's not what's occurring. So there's uh, several that follow people over time and found that, for example, screen time, social media use, more of that led to more unhappiness. But more unhappiness did not lead to more social media use or screen time. And there was another study, it was a true experiment, so I can really show causation, and randomly assigned people to either give up Facebook for a week or not, and found that those who gave up Facebook ended the week happier, less depressed, and less lonely than those who continued to use Facebook. And, you know, I think uh, I'm, I'm a parent. Uh, many people listening are parents, grandparents, whatever else. We know that our kids are on too much. We know this is the case. Yet we don't, we either don't do anything about it or we feel we can't do anything about it because we're a terrible, terrible parent if our kids can't reach us at all times. So they must have a phone now. That's the common belief. And then once they get a phone in their hands, though, this is a wonderful, exciting toy. And it's really hard then to pry it out of their hands and say, yeah, but don't use that toy. Exactly. So first we have to recognize these things are, they're addictive, Um, and especially for children who don't have the self-control skills, even for many adults. It's just we get we get sucked in. There's no natural end to it. And, you know, seeing those likes and followers is addictive. Um, so we can't necessarily expect kids to limit their own use. That's hard enough for adults. So as parents, we really have to step in. So sure, if you want to get your kid a phone for safety, I understand that impulse. I have three kids myself. Um, but when they're young, you know, they're going off to, uh, you know, taking the bus, have them get a flip phone. Then they don't have this complete access to the Internet and every all the temptations that come with it. Uh, once they're a little older and they do get a smartphone, limit the amount of time per day that they use it, the amount of time per day that they can be on certain apps, have it shut down an hour before bedtime so they get enough sleep. Um, there's apps that can do that and some um, – phone manufacturers are taking more steps, so putting those controls on is, is, can be easier. 
you mentioned that it's addictive. Do you? There, not everybody is in agreement that cell phones or that devices can actually that technology can be addictive. It's not a chemical thing like if I shot heroin or something, and it's truly that kind of addiction. Do you believe in technology addiction? Well, I definitely believe in technology overuse, and that overuse um, clearly has uh, negative impacts on people. So I think, you know, whether or not you call it an addiction is somewhat of, you know, a semantic debate. But, you know, some of the people say, well, you shouldn't call it an addiction because just because it lights up the same pathways in the brain as drugs, which it does. And they'll say, yes, but those same pathways light up for food and for sex. You know, are those addictions? Well, if you eat too much food, that's also a problem. If you have sex with everybody you meet, that is also a problem. So really, it comes down to the very simple principle of, everything in moderation uh, when it comes to things like technology and food and sex that are good for us in small doses, but are not good for us in high doses. Do we know what the physical or mental or emotional thing is that causes the unhappiness? Or do we know why watching this, watching these things would cause us to be unhappy? Or is it just that we know that it does? Well, we do know it does. I think there's likely three possible mechanisms. So one is that, well, teens spend, by most surveys, on average, about six hours of their leisure time with electronic devices. That is a lot of time. That's almost all their leisure time. So that crowds out the amount of time they have to do things like seeing their friends in person. That's effect one, uh, which is good for mental health. And then it also can interfere with sleep. And not sleeping enough is a big risk factor for Hmm. developing depression as well as uh, physical health problems. Then there's the possible direct effect of screens, that we compare ourselves to everybody else's seemingly Hmm. more glamorous life on Facebook. Uh, For teens, there's the issue of cyberbullying, that it's bullying they can't get away from when they go home from school. So there's a lot of possibilities. Yeah, you know, that is a lot of possibilities. I was wondering, prior to you answering that, I was wondering if because... You're spending more and more time alone as you're on these devices, presumably, if happiness as a word could be interchangeable with loneliness in this case. But it sounds like that may be, but there's more to it as well. Yeah, there is more to it. And so what what these big surveys show is, yes, there has been an increase in loneliness, uh, but there's also been a drop in happiness and an increase in depression. And that's partially because having those relationships, not feeling lonely, feeling truly connected to other people, which usually happens through in-person social interaction, that really is one of the keys for mental health. So they are closely related to each other. Here's one of the interesting things, and I don't know what the situation is in California, what the rules are there. Uh, Up here, I know it's been a difficult thing when they've tried to do things like this. I've always thought, okay, we've got kids now that are going to be at their school for six, seven hours of the day. That is six or seven hours that if you had a box at the front door of the school, that when a kid came through the door of the school, they had to check in their phone, that you could have at least six or seven hours of the day where they were forced to be social creatures again, as we were once upon a time. 
And if you have to make an emergency call, fine, you can go to the office and check out your phone. But by and large, it would basically say this is a technology-free zone except where it's being used for school. But it seems that schools, school boards, groups are saying that's not a good thing. And I'm looking going, that to me seems like the best thing we could possibly do at our schools. It's interesting. A lot of teens think the same thing. Really? I get a lot. Yeah, and that would surprise me in a way until I read the emails uh, that I've gotten from teens. So one of them said, as more and more of my friends have gotten smartphones, they look at their phones during lunch and they don't talk to me. He said, I started to feel like they didn't like me anymore. I mean, his, his email just like broke, it broke my heart because he just felt like he was being shut out when the truth was his phones, you know, his friends were just involved in their phones. Another young woman said the same thing. She said, at school, people are quieter. Um, they ignore me instead of talking to me. Um, so these are, these are teens who, in one case, the young man didn't even have his own smartphone. In the other case, she had one but didn't use it very much. They're not even using the technology, and they're being affected by all of the people around them who are on them all the time and thus not talking to them, which makes them feel horrible. I'd love to know if a school actually had a situation where a bunch of the students said, we'd like to try this, if they would do it. Because as I say, up here we've had, there have been cases where teachers have tried to do this and it's not been met with a good response. But boy, it seems like, I'd love to see an experiment done. With, after your research, by saying happiness at least is going to be aided by some more time away from screens, let's try it. Let's do something to at least see if it could actually have a an impact at this at school where you spend the bulk of your day. I, I think it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. I mean, especially, especially at lunchtime, that more yes. time. And you know, the thing is, it's not only good for mental health, it's good for developing social skills. And that's what managers say they find lacking in a lot of their young employees. They say, boy, they're smart, but they won't even look you in the eye and they don't know how to talk to people face to face. Will this ever get fixed, though? Because we're getting more and more tied in technologically. We're getting more and more connected. All the big tech companies want everything to be connected tech-wise. I don't see how this goes backwards to not having this. Well, I don't think we're going to go backward to not having it, but I think there, there is already right now a moment of reckoning and just the re- growing recognition that spending too much time on these devices is not healthy. So I think we will see in the years going forward more solutions to this, more uh, parental controls on phones, maybe ways that schools can, say, let their kids have the phone in the backpack, but it's not going to work within the school grounds. Some kind of solution where we can make sure that there are these protected times um, for both teens and adults when we're not going to have the phones. When you go to a restaurant, do not be on your phone. When you have family dinner, put that thing away. Don't stay up late, you know, looking at it. All of these things that would really help us be happier. Do I understand, i got to let you go, but do I understand that you wrote or you were part of a group that wrote to Apple asking them to explore what the impact of their devices was on teenagers? Yeah, so I helped draft a letter from two uh, major investors in Apple asking the company to develop better um, integrated parental controls on iPhones and iPads. At the moment, what they had, there are third-party apps that do this, but there's a lot of them, and it's overwhelming. And the integrated controls right now are very binary. They either let you turn or on or off certain apps. Well, it would be better to have something that say, okay, kid, you can use Snapchat, but for half an hour a day. And the phone is going to shut down an hour before bedtime, and you can use it 
you know, whatever amount the parent says, 90 minutes a day, two hours a day. Um, and then you can use it for emergency calls, but that's it. It shuts off. Um, and you got to go do something else. It is, uh, there's a lot to take in with this study. There's a lot in the book as well. Um, iGen, why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. We could do this for about six hours, you know, and you probably have with some <laughs> other interviewers. Uh, Dr. Gene Twangy from uh, San Diego State University. Really, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Uh, go look at that book. If you are interested in this, well, I'm going to tell you the name one more time. It's iGen, as in like iPad or something, iGen, G-E-N, why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. Her last name, the author, Twangy, T-W-E-N-G-E. If you know someone who has a kid or a grandkid or whomever who can't get off their device, it's maybe something you might want to grab for them to read over, I don't know, spring break, summer break, sometime in the next little while. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.